This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We're going to turn to the Word of God now, and this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Over the past few weeks, Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians about the collection for Christians over in Jerusalem. There's a famine uh, in the world in these days. Uh, Claudius, the emperor, is on the throne in Rome, uh, and things are tough for Christians in the region of Judea. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, they they want to help, they have promised to help, and he writes to encourage them to gather up that collection so that there's no embarrassment and send it uh, to the saints in Judea. Titus and two others have been sent to Corinth to gather that collection up so everything is done above board so that God is honoured in the sight of the world, and indeed we honour him with how we live and work And we are to give cheerfully, Paul says at the end of chapter 9. That's where we are now, folks. That's how far we've got in this book. And so this morning we read together 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the whole chapter, and then we will consider it this morning. I know you're far away. I know you're in your conservatory or maybe in your bed. That's ridiculous. Get yourself up. But wherever you are, get your Bible out, open it up, uh, look on with me. And we will read this together. 2 Corinthians 10. And this is the word of God. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you. That when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, then let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us 
to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. Amen. And we thank God today for his precious word. It should always break our hearts, but it should never ever surprise us when the church of Jesus Christ faces opposition and difficulty. If you are a member of a church that has known confrontation, opposition and difficulty, then think on the person whose fault it was. Think on that individual. If you could just somehow pluck them out of the fellowship, then everything would be better. Am I right? It's maybe the boy in the pulpit. It's maybe the woman in the choir. It's maybe the guy who's an elder. It's, it's maybe his granny. It's maybe his mother-in-law. Whoever it might be, think on that person. And if only we could somehow get them to go to another church, everything would be perfect. That's true, isn't it? If only we could somehow click our fingers and remove the difficult members, everything would be joyous and happy and bright. Not quite, my brothers and sisters. You see, if I was the problem in the church, or if you were the problem in the church, or that person that you sat beside was the problem in the church, and we could somehow remove them from the fellowship, the church of Jesus Christ would still face opposition and difficulty. And why is that? Because often the source of our problems are not where we think they are. Paul begins this chapter by entreating the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Over these past months, as we have worked our way through this book, we know that the Corinthians were listening far too much to the false teachers, the false apostles who were pointing the finger at Paul and saying that he shouldn't be listened to. Paul even highlights that as this verse continues. He says, I am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. This was the big criticism. Who does Paul think he is? When he shows up, he's all sweetness and light. When he shows up, he doesn't sound like much. He, doesn't, uh, he isn't worth listening to. And yet as soon as he gets down the street, he writes these big bold letters and he points the finger and he shakes the fist. And the false apostles were pointing at this and saying, it's a nonsense. Don't be listening to Paul. But Paul, of course, is not that man. Paul loves the Corinthians. We've established that over these past few weeks. He wants the best for the Corinthians. And so now he writes again to them to defend himself again. And he writes by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Straight away there is a lesson. In the very first verse in this chapter there is a lesson. How do we deal with confrontation and opposition when it comes? Certainly we can fight fire with fire. Certainly, if gossip is thrown at us, then we respond with gossip. 
Certainly, if we are annoyed with someone, we can respond with sin. We can cut them out. We can ignore them. We can treat them badly. We can fight fire with fire. But Paul doesn't come fighting fire with fire. He doesn't come pointing to the false apostles and saying, oh, they're all big talk. But if I was there, they wouldn't open their mouths. He doesn't say that. He says, I come by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, who our Lord Jesus Christ was and is. He is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That is our Savior. And yes, he is the lion-like lamb, as we discover him in the book of Revelation. We should not think that he is a paper tiger who is not fierce against his enemies. But Jesus comes as a servant, like a little lamb, led away to the slaughter, and he says not a word. How do we face down our opponents and our critics, not fire with fire, but coming with meekness and gentleness of Christ? Paul is accused of being the big man when he's far away and humble when face to face. But he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence with you. He doesn't actually want to come and have to shout the odds. He doesn't have to come or want to come and point the finger and say, Corinthians, we need to get this area sorted or that area sorted or or this individual doesn't need to be disciplined or should be disciplined. That's not what Paul wants to do. He much rather would come to a fellowship, preach the word, share Christ with them, see that fellowship grow and be encouraged and built up, see outsiders being brought into saving faith in Christ. That's the apostle's wish. He doesn't want to come to show boldness with them, but he is going to come to show that boldness against some who suspect Paul and his colleagues of walking according to the flesh. That comes at the end of verse 2. See, Paul is not going to miss those who oppose him. Paul is not going to allow those who oppose him to just go idly by. And again, this is a lesson for us. Church discipline is is always two dirty words. Nobody ever wants to be engaged in church discipline. We shrink from it. But Paul here says sometimes church discipline is absolutely necessary. He comes and he is counting to show this boldness against those who accuse Paul and his friends of walking according to the flesh. See, what is at stake here in Corinth is not a difference of opinion. It is the gospel. What is at stake is that these men have twisted the gospel. They are lying about the gospel. And whenever the gospel is at stake then we might desire peace, but we must be prepared for war. Paul comes in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ to minister to the Corinthians, but he comes to challenge those who say that Paul is a fleshly man, a a man who walks according to the power of the flesh and the strength of the flesh. And Paul says, although we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we are not waging war according to the flesh what does he mean what does he mean friends it is as we have already said in this sermon whenever there's opposition and difficulty in the church it always breaks our heart but it never surprises us because the source of that disagreement 
the source of that problem. Yes, we point and say, oh, it's, it's Roberta in the choir. It's her. It's her fault. Or it's your man in the pulpit. It's his fault. Or it's the guy who, who hands out the announcements. It, it's his fault. He started all this. Although we point there and sometimes we, we don't help ourselves. Sometimes sin abounds. Ultimately, Paul understands that the war that we are engaged in is not a war which is flesh against flesh. Paul says in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's true. Paul understood it. Paul knew that ultimately the issue in Corinth wasn't a, a couple of guys who were acting like clumpets, but ultimately the battle was a spiritual one. It was a, an invisible battle that was played out in the visible church. That should help us and inform us the next time we, we want to grab your woman by the throat. And the next time we want to get your man a, a bus pass for the next church over. Ultimately, the battle that we face is a spiritual one. And ultimately, the enemy that we face is not Joe Bloggs in the pew. But it is Satan and his minions at work in the unseen places. I know that that sounds very dramatic. I, I know listening to that, you might think, what's that about? What's that about? The problem in my church is the praise. Get that sorted out and everything's okay. The problem in my church is the minister. Get a new one and everything's okay. If only it were true. This land, if that were true, would be filled with perfect churches that never experience any problems. But it's not true. The enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is ancient and he is filled with hate for he knows his time is short. We will think more as these chapters progress over the next weeks. But the enemy and the problem is rarely as easily fixed as you think it might be. Paul understands that. The war that he is engaged in. The war that he says he comes by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It is a war against the unseen forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, says Paul in verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Amazing. See, Paul doesn't enter into this battle and, and it's somehow an unfair fight. Because the devil can throw gossip and slander and break all the rules of the day. And, and Paul will never do that. And so you and I looking at it might think, well, that's not fair. How do you stand against evil and hate? How do you stand against those who tell lies over the countryside about, about you or your granny or your uncle? How do you stand against such individuals? Fight fire with fire. Isn't that right? If the enemy throws gossip, we throw it back. Isn't that right? If the enemy throws slander, we throw it back. Isn't that right? No, my brothers and sisters, those are the, the weapons of the world. Those are the weapons of those around us. Those are, are the standards of practice in the world around us. But this is the church of Jesus Christ. And so if we find ourselves in difficult times, if we see opposition and slander and difficulty in the body of the local church, and we engage in that fight. We do not shrink from it, but we know that the weapons of that fight are not the weapons of this world. 
How would Paul come to battle this enemy in Corinth? He says in verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul comes preaching the word of God. Paul comes and is a man of passionate and zealous prayer. Paul, you could say, to use grand reformed Presbyterian language, he comes with a ministry of the means of grace. Brothers and sisters, how often do we take the word read and the word preached and the prayers of the saints and the sacraments administered, how often do we take those things incredibly lightly? We treat them as if they are cheap. And because they are cheap, they're easily replaced, and we don't want that much to do with them. How often is that our attitude? My friends, if our church fellowships are knowing opposition and difficulty, if we are not seeing any fruit for our labors, if we are men and women who who look at the world against us and shrink back, and if we are divided uh, beyond all recognition in our fellowships over over choirs or money or preaching or or seats or colors of the carpet or all those usual things that annoy and trouble church fellowships, how do we address that? How do we engage in that battle? How do we ride forth? And wrestle with those invisible forces in the spiritual realms. How do we do it? By the ordinary means. By the word preached. Attending onto it. By the word read. By the prayers of the saints. By falling to our knees. And by coming regularly and frequently to the Lord's table and to the sacrament of baptism. You know, I'm aware that even as I say that, even as I preach that and, and look down this camera into your homes, I know that that doesn't seem very exciting. I know that you look at that and think, well, well surely that's not all there must be. Surely we, 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 we must be able to go down the street and, and command demons to flee. And surely we must be able to do amazing things and, and, and to see we Vera transform because we command Satan to come out with her. So sometimes we, we want the exciting stuff. And the Lord gives us things that seem to us not to be terribly exciting, but I assure you that the ordinary means of grace are full of power and glory. For they are given to us by God himself. This morning as you watch this service, you have heard me reading the word of God. Even now, even though I am an imperfect preacher, you are hearing me preach the word of God. We long for days when the table that is just below me here out of shot that it is filled with bread and wine and we can hand it out to our congregation and we can eat and drink together. This is for our good. I, I long for the day where as Presbyterians we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. I long for the day that you and I, we, we fill the time of prayer. There's not a room big enough for us to have a time of prayer together. For by these means, as Paul say, says in verse 5, arguments are destroyed. 
Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God is destroyed and every thought is taken captive to obey Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? Paul doesn't want to humiliate his enemies. Paul doesn't want to bring them to a place where they are utterly destroyed and cast out of the fellowship in sackcloth and ashes lying in a church car park. Paul wants them to be men and women who repent. Paul wants them to be radically transformed. Paul wants them to be moved from darkness into light. He wants them to be saved where their every thought is under the obedience of Christ. That is what drives us as we enter into spiritual battle. See, we are to be men and women prepared to exercise church discipline. Paul says that in verse 6. We are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When, when you, Corinth, you want to obey, when you are moving in the right direction, together we will exercise church discipline to those who are disobedient. Church discipline is a, a necessary tool in any church government. We are to stand against evil. We are to punish disobedience. But the goal of church discipline is to bring the person involved back into a place of fellowship, restoration through their repentance. That's what we want to see. And that's what Paul wants to see. He wants these individuals to be, even every thought, captive to the obedience of Christ. Friends, the battles that we fight, the battles that most churches have, well, again, none of them should surprise us. Again, we should never throw our hands up in despair and think, why is this happening? It has happened in every age, and it will happen in the ages to come, and it will happen even if the problem, whoever or whatever that problem is, is removed. It will happen again. But when it comes, we understand that our battle is with the enemy, not the sinner caught up in the battle, but with the enemy, the unseen forces of evil. And we wage war against him, not with white horses swinging a sword and painted on a gable wall, but with the tools that God has given us. Paul urges these men and women in verse 7 to look at what is before their eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, says Paul, then let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Paul says, you, you have these men throwing these barbs, throwing these accusations, but I am a Christian too, says Paul. Is this valid? Is this right that you're throwing these lies at me? Paul says, no. If you belong to Christ, then so do I. Why is this war that is going on in Corinth so bitter? Why is it so tarnished and so rotten? It's because the enemy is at work. But Paul comes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He should be listened to. He says in verse 8, Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul, I'm sure, longs for the days where he doesn't need to mention too much that he is an apostle, but he is an apostle. The Corinthians should listen to Paul. The apostles uh, were the men who had seen the risen Christ. They had been sent out by the risen Christ, and they were equipped with signs and wonders, the signs of an apostle, which acted as, as guarantees of their message. 
And the apostles are no more. Paul uh, died and other apostles died. The office is closed. There are no apostles in the church today. But we still submit ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. We are part of the church, which is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Paul, filled with authority, comes and he says, I have come not to destroy you, but to build you up. And that's the other side of the coin to the false apostles. Ultimately, their ministry only brings death. Their false ministry sees churches closed. Their false ministry sees people led away to a lost eternity because they do not preach Christ and him crucified. They preach a false gospel. And a false gospel cannot and never could ever save anyone. Paul comes to build up. And he doesn't want to appear frightening to these men and women, verse 9, with his letters. Because the apostles who oppose him, the false apostles, I should say, in verse 10, they throw the criticisms. They say, oh, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Isn't that amazing? The target of the false apostles, it, it wasn't Paul's teaching. They didn't say, has he, has he got justification right? Is he, is he really orthodox in his view of the Holy Spirit? What do they do? They point at his appearance. Oh, he's a big man, his letters, but look at him. I've told you before in these sermons that uh, we reckon from church history that Paul was, was sm small, short, one big eyebrow across his head, bow-legged, bald. As I look into this camera, I'm, I'm not too far from him. Paul didn't look like much. Paul wouldn't have been a, a prize catch if you saw him coming up your driveway and arm in arm with your daughter, you'd probably think, what is she doing? The false apostle said, look, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. We're often guilty of that, still in the church today. If something looks good, if it sounds good, then it must be good. If something looks the part and is bright and shiny and new, then, then that's the place that we want to be. We, we're always like little spiritual magpies floating about looking for the next great thing. And yet we are not ever, of course, to judge according to what we see. I wrote in a devotion the other week that the most famous children's address of all is the one that comes from 1 Samuel 16. And we get all the kids up to the front and we, we talk about who a hero is and what a hero looks like and, and who would be the best leader and the best king and all the rest of it. And of course, if you know that passage, then you will know that the prophet Samuel was to learn that God looks on the inside whilst man looks on the out. The false apostles were guilty exactly of that. The false apostles pointed at Paul and said, look, Look, look at the state of him. Look how he sounds. He's not like us. He doesn't look like us. We're, we're good. We're tall. We're handsome. We are fine preachers. But none of it was relevant. See, they wanted to fight the visible fight. When Paul realized that the fight was against the invisible. Let such a person understand, says Paul. That what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul is no card. Paul is not someone with two faces. 
He doesn't say one thing in private and then do another thing in public. Not a bit of it. This is a man of integrity and truth. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. A man who may not look like much but was coming to fight this war with the power of God, with the weapons of warfare that God had given him. Weapons that would tear down strongholds and destroy the enemy's plans. These false apostles didn't get it. Paul says we would not dare to classify or compare ourselves, verse 12, with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. It is a nonsense that they do this. They are saying, well, well, we're better than them because we're taller and we're better and we're sounding good. And, and, and it's all about how things look on the outside. It's, it's foolishness, says Paul. They are without understanding. But as for us, verse 13, we will not boast beyond limits but will only boast with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us to reach even to you. See the change in tone? What were the false apostles doing? They, they were coming to Corinth. They were coming to a church that had already been established. They were boasting about themselves. They were tearing down God's servants. They were men who were feathering their own nest. They were saying how good they were. They were pointing to numbers and saying, look at how wonderful my preaching has been. Look at all these men and women who have now come in under my flock. It was me, 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 me. And Paul instead says, I must decrease. And God must increase. Paul does not boast about anything except, except the area of influence that God has given him. Paul understands that if he is a preacher of the gospel in Corinth, then it is because of the will of God. He understands that if anyone has ever been saved as a result of his ministry, it is because of the will of God. Paul understands that if the false apostles are put to flight, it is because of the strength of God and the will of God. Paul understands that it is not about him, but it is all about Jesus. Apparently, long ago, a man called G.K. Chesterton responded to a competition that wanted to know what the problem with the world was. And allegedly, G.K. Chesterton responded by saying, I am. It's me. I'm the problem. I am. Now, there's no real evidence that he wrote that or said that. It's assigned to him, and perhaps 80% happened. Who knows? But it's a good thing to think about. How many of us, whenever we are walking through this pilgrim land, consider ourselves to be the problem? I am. I'm the issue. Instead, often we are filled with boastful arrogance. Arrogance that says, there's no one like me. I'm pretty special. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty amazing. And we hear men and women sometimes, even in the church, boasting about how they have led many people to the Lord. Whenever I hear that, I, I cringe somewhat. I know what they mean. And, and I'm sure they're not speaking out of arrogance or pride, but it sounds a little bit like I have done this. Paul says, I wouldn't have been in Corinth if it wasn't for the Lord. I wouldn't have 
worked among you and ministered to you if it wasn't for the Lord. There wouldn't have been a church in Corinth if it wasn't for the Lord. I wouldn't be able to go and preach in other places if it wasn't for the Lord. I wouldn't see the fruit of my labors if it wasn't for the Lord. I wouldn't be able to engage in spiritual warfare if it wasn't for the Lord. Not the arrogance of the false apostles that said, look at me. But instead the meekness and gentleness of Christ flowing out of this apostle that says, look at him. Paul says we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others he's not looking at his neighbor he's not looking at others who've done things he says in verse 14 as well we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of christ but our hope in all of this verse 15 is that as your faith increases our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, verse 16, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul could not be any more different than those who point the finger at him and say that he is false. I will boast in the Lord. I will boast in his work. I will rejoice that he has seen the harvest in Corinth. And I will go further in lands beyond Corinth to preach the gospel without boasting of the work done by others, but instead always boasting in the Lord. And it is, as Paul says in verse 17, quoting from Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, this is the attitude that we must take and we must bring into our fellowships. Whenever fellowships are hopelessly divided, more often than not, it's because of ego and personality and sin. And in the invisible places, the enemy is the one who twists that and uses that and delights in the conversations that we have in church car parks. He delights in, in posting uh, anonymous messages through letterboxes. He likes anonymous posters stuck in the gates of church fences. He likes little twisting disagreements. He likes lies and slander. He likes arguments about how things look. When in reality, you and I, I hope and trust, act with gentleness and meekness and truth, understanding that the only thing that we have to boast about is Christ and him crucified. See, one of the tragedies about divided fellowships and about when churches wage war visibly against one another without realizing who is stirring it all up one of the great tragedies is that the gospel gets left to the side but as paul has quoted from jeremiah 9 verse 23 to 24 the the full verse states that let the one who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me See, there is where our focus always needs to be. We boast because we know Christ. And we boast in the fact that we know Christ, not because someone has led us there with persuasive arguments or because they have looked amazing, but we boast of it because we know that in itself is a supernatural work, that the Spirit has led us from sin to repentance and faith in Jesus. We boast in the Lord 
because we know that we would not consider ourselves to be called Christian without him. My friends, when all of this ends, and when crowds return to our fellowships, may we return with an attitude that doesn't seek razzmatazz or glitter or smoke machines or shebang. May we return to our fellowships not prepared to wage war so that our church buildings can remain open. That's a, a Presbyterian battle that we love to fight. Join up two churches, well, what will we do with the buildings? I know we'll fight for 10 years and when it all comes to an end, we'll close anyway. Friends, when all of this ends, may we return with the knowledge that Christ is all. The coming to church is not about me, me, me. We're not the king of the castle and we're not daddy's little princess. We understand that we come to be built up, not destroyed, as Paul has said. We come to be fed by the word and fed by the sacraments and to have fellowship and prayer together. We come to do spiritual things, wage spiritual war against the unseen places and, and enemies all around us. Friends, may we not return like it was before. But may the Lord in this time of absence and in this time of pandemic and shutdown, may he raise the standard of maturity in his bride, the church. You see, the Lord has commanded us. The Lord is the one who does not say, well, Scott, you tell me how good you are and then I will think about whether I will commend you. That's not it. Verse 18 says, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. Paul did not need the false apostles to pat him on the back and say how wonderful he was. The Lord himself had commanded Paul, not because of works, but because Paul had received Christ by faith. My friends, may we remember this. You're not the king of Christ's church. This church of ours and the church that you go to does not revolve around you. And instead of judging by visible things, Instead of fighting fire with fire and attacking the world with the tools of the world, may we come back to church with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. My brothers and sisters, as we close today, then let me remind those listening of the gospel, the gospel that you and I have believed, you see, the world out there is filled with men and women who are lost and do not know it. But instead of waging war against them, lying about them, slandering them and closing our doors to them, may we preach Christ and him crucified. And may these be days of harvest where every thought of rebellious sinners is brought into obedience of Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. And that every church say, we must decrease while Christ increases.